story begins, I think as a young girl, just really having an idea of how my life was gonna go. Um, when I was young, I always envisioned I'd go to college, get married, and at one point have a family. And so the first part of that went really along as planned. I went to college, um, met Tim at college. We got married a year after I graduated. Um, and then we wanted to wait to start a family. We were 22, 23 when we got married. So we waited a few years and then thought, okay, let's, let's try now. Um, and that's where the story took a big shift. We started trying to have kids and for the, we didn't get pregnant for a year, but I wasn't overly worried. You know, they say, give it a year. Um, so after a year, I went to the doctor and he said that I had a tumor, a benign tumor. Um, and it could be, it doesn't always provide issues with infertility, but it, it can. So we started to do tests at that point just to see, okay, what's going on? Um, and, and then several months later into that process, I became pregnant. And so we were so excited. We thought, okay, great. It didn't have a problem with fertility, got pregnant. Um, it was right before Easter. We told my family and Tim's family on Easter Sunday. And then a few weeks later, I lost the baby. And I was just so shocked at that point. Like I, I had friends who had gotten married about the same time, they had older kids, um, lots of friends I knew having babies, and I didn't know anyone at that point who had lost one. And so it was just, I think the biggest emotion was shock, and then followed by, of course, grief and, and sadness of losing this child. Tim and I grieved and processed through that, and continued to you know, go back to the doctor and do tests and see what the problem was. And the doctor really recommended having surgery. I had that surgery and we thought, okay, hopefully the problem is taken care of. Um, but it's still, I still didn't get pregnant. So I think about six months later where I got pregnant again. So, um, and it seemed like the timing was just perfect. We were looking to move into our first house in Atlanta um, and then I lost the baby again. And at that point, I was devastated. Um, it, we had been four years now into the process of trying to have kids. And it was just heartbreaking on multiple levels. For me, really grieving the loss of a dream as well. Felt like, okay, this has been four years. We did what the doctor said, and I'm still getting pregnant, but not being able to carry the babies and so there's so many questions at that point you know would we ever be able to have kids would would we ever be able to have a family of our own and um, just yeah there was just a lot of grief surrounding that I was just very raw at that point I remember reading a verse in Psalm 18 that said as for God his way is perfect and I remember reading that during that season and thinking do I really believe that? Like if we are never able to have children of our own, would I still believe His ways are perfect? Um, and re really wrestling, wrestling with that.
Well, good morning and welcome to Epic. My name is Tim Jones and I'm one of the pastors on staff and we are so glad that you are here with us. If you are just joining us, we are in part four of our Hopeless series. And in this series, we have been asking the question, what do you do in a hopeless situation? And so for the last three weeks, we have been examining some of the stories of those people who attend Epic and been looking at their response and how they have turned to God. And some of them have turned to God with trust, some with praise, and some with repentance. Now today we're going to be asking the question, what do you do in a hopeless situation when dealing with a loss? And as my wife Sarah uh, already began to share some of our story in the video, today I'm going to share with you our journey of infertility and losing three of our children. And so if you have ever lost a child, my heart grieves for you. And my prayer today is that you will find words of comfort and encouragement as I share our story. Now, as Sarah mentioned in her story and my story as well, you know, growing up, I thought having children would never be an issue. You know, I just always thought having kids would be easy. In the circles that I ran in, you know, people had children all the time. It was a time of celebration. It was exciting. I never knew anything different. And so when Sarah and I got married, uh, we thought we would wait five years to have kids as we worked on our graduate degrees and as we laid a, you know, what we wanted to lay a good foundation for our marriage. And so almost five years into marriage, I remember the moment that Sarah took a pregnancy test and she came out and it was positive. And we were so excited. And I ran and got the video camera and I started filming the the test. I started filming her initial reaction. And Easter was just right around the corner. And I said, man, wouldn't it be great if we, your parents are gonna be in town and we gather the whole family around Easter service and tell them. And so we decided to do that. And so Easter services happened and we told them and they were so excited for us. Here's their little girl who's going to be a mama. And then unfortunately, about three weeks later, Sarah started going through some issues. And we went into the doctor and we had an ultrasound and the tech person kept asking us, you know, um, when did you get pregnant? You know, I'm just not hearing a heartbeat. And it was devastating for us. And later that week, she went into her first miscarriage and we cried and we didn't know what to do. Now, after the initial loss, it got tougher because we started asking some questions. Sarah started asking questions. Why did this happen? You know, could we have done something different? You know, did we do something that was wrong? You know, and as we started down this journey of infertility, the questions only grew and they only got harder. And so we asked questions of God. We said, God, why would you allow this to happen? Why didn't you do something? You know, God, I will never see their smile. I will never be able to hear them say dada. I will never be able to teach them uh, how to play ball or see them get married. God, why would you allow this to happen to us? And as we cycled through those tough questions, I think the question that we were really asking boiled down to one question, and it was the question of, God, are you really in control? From our vantage point, It doesn't seem like it, you know? When you look at all the facts, when you look throughout history, there have been millions, perhaps billions of unborn babies, infants who have died, young children who have died. God, what are you up to? What are you doing about this? Are you really in control? 
Now, those are tough questions. Questions that I know many of us have wrestled with and questions that deserve an answer in a hopeless situation, especially when it concerns that of a loss. And if you have ever walked through a loss, I know you've probably wondered the same questions. God, if you're really in control, then why did you allow this to happen? And so I hope today to be able to share with you the journey that we went on and what we learned with God as we look at actually someone in scripture who dealt with some similar things of hope and hopelessness in the same situation or kind of the same situation. So if you have your Bible today, I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. If you have a smartphone device, feel free to use that. If you need a Bible, grab one in the back. But today we're going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screens as well. But go ahead and turn there. Now, before we dive in, let me unpack what is going on at the time in this history of Israel. Um, we're jumping into about 1120 BC, so just over 3,000 years ago, and it's known as the time, or coming to the end of the time of the judges in Israel's history, and Israel at the time was living as these massive tribes kind of unto themselves, and everyone was doing what was right according to their own eyes. And so whatever they thought was right, they were doing, even though somebody else was doing something else that might have been right, they were doing whatever they wanted to do. And so many of the Israelites were not following God. And many of them uh, were questioning was whether God was really in control and if he would bring clarity to the situation. Now, there were some who were following God, but for the most part, most of them were not. Now, even in the midst of these challenges, God continued to work behind the scenes to bring clarity. And he was working behind the scenes to bring a leader, to bring clarity for his people. But he was also doing something else. He was working on a personal level, um, and he was working to bring clarity for a woman in a hopeless situation who was asking her own question of whether God was really in control or not. So let's see how these two things unfold today. So beginning in verse two, Elkaniah had two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. Now that's trouble, all right? Can I get an old school amen from the women? All right, there we go, all right? <clears throat> Penaniah had children, but Hannah did not. Now that's more trouble. Now each year, Elkaniah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. So here's our woman, Hannah, all right? She is in a hopeless situation. And let me tell you the obstacles that she's up against, all right? Not only can she not, uh, is unable to have children, but her husband caves in to the pressures of the culture of that day that said, you know what? If your first wife cannot have an heir, go and get another wife, so could you imagine being Hannah and all of a sudden your husband brings another wife into the home, you know? And this uh, wife that he brings into the home is like a baby producing machine as well. And so you've got that going on, but to make matters worse, you go to this annual time to worship with the people who are still worshiping God and you might see your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and your uncles and their families, and they all have children, and they look at you with that certain glance to see whether you're with child or not. So here's Hannah, 
who does not feel complete, who desperately wants to have a child. Now, on Sarah and I's journey, I know exactly that feeling because I saw that strong feeling within Sarah. Now, if you know my wife, she is extremely gifted, okay? She worked for two organizations, and within those two organizations that she worked for, she rose up within the ranks very fast. She is very gifted at what she does, and she could have been, like, mega successful. And yet, despite all the success that she experienced, there was a desire within her, more than anything else, to want to have a child just like Hannah. There's just something that was in her that did not feel complete. So let's continue. In verse 4, on the days Elkaniah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to Penaniah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion. Important to note that. All right, we'll come back to that in a second. Because the Lord had given her no children. So Penaniah would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. So here's what's going on. When the Israelites went out to worship God, often they were required to give an offering or a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. And part of the ceremony is that part of the meat would be given to the family to go and cook and to eat. And so here's Elkaniah, and he is excited to bring back this best portion. Some of your translations, it says that he gave Hannah two portions. What it really is saying that he gave her the best portion uh, and reserved it for her. So... How romantic, all right? So babe, here's a steak, all right? But really, that was a great honor, and it was something noble that he did because she did not have a child, and most of the time, you gave that piece of meat to the one who had your heir. And so Elkaniah was trying to show her love. But Penaniah gets kind of word of this, sees what's going on, and gets jealous, and she goes and taunts and talks trash to Hannah on a regular basis and reminds her that she is without child and reminds her how many children that she has. And to make matters worse, she says to Hannah, maybe you are you know, without child because obviously God is behind this. So when you're in the midst of a hopeless situation, often there are people who can be allies. There are some people who are for you. There are some who try to say some things and they're well-meaning, but then there are some people who, you know, aren't so well-meaning and they say some things and they try to give advice or they try to do something in the situation and they offer up things to you in your hopeless situation like, you know, have you tried this? You know, um, have you, you know, prayed enough? You know, if you would just pray more, then God would give you a child. And we experienced some of that. And the real question isn't like, what are you doing? The real question is, what is God up to? And sometimes that is a slow process. And it's harder because in those moments, you're waiting and you're formulating more and more questions. And that's what happened to Hannah as well. The questions kind of grew more intense over time as she continued to go back every year. And I'm sure there was talk around her of what's going on. Why is she not being able to have a child? Let's pick up in verse 7. Year after year, it was the same. Penaniah would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. And each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. 
Now, after Sarah and I's first miscarriage, you know, it was really hard for us. Uh, and we wanted to seek out answers. And so we started going down the medical route. And at first, when we started to ask questions, the answers that we started to get was, well, this just happens. And that's not what you want to hear in a situation like that. And as we started to meet with her doctor who knew of the fibroid, um, he wanted to do more tests. And so he continued to do test after test after test. And then we sat down with him and he said, here's the deal. You guys, or Sarah, has this non-cancerous fibroid tumor, which is really large. And I want to operate. Now, it could be the issue or it could not be the issue. Now, for us, we were kind of relieved. We thought, okay, that's somewhat of a good answer. But, you know, he wants to operate you know, will this really solve the issue? So we decided to get a second opinion. And the only problem with going and getting a second opinion is you've got to tell the story over and over again. You've got to tell this new doctor and their staff of all the heartbreak that you've been through in that situation. And so this uh, infertility specialist, she continued to do more tests. And then all of a sudden we had this big meeting with her. And she said this, when we got to that big meeting, she said, All right, after reviewing all of your tests, I agree. Like, I really think that you should have this fibroid removed, okay? But it could be the issue or it could not be the issue. That's not exactly what we wanted to hear. But then she went on. She said, hey, let me just ask you a question. How did you get to the doctor that you're going to? And so Sarah said, well, you know, when we first moved to Atlanta, um, there was one recommendation, and we tried to get in there, but they weren't taking anybody, so she just looked up in the phone book, and here's the person, so let, let me get in. And she's like, that is unbelievable. She said, I know that practice, and there is a waiting list to get into that practice. Like, nobody just gets into that practice. And in fact, did you know just how talented your doctor is as a surgeon? He's known as one of the best in the country for doing this type of surgery. And I would trust him personally with my life. And so after hearing that, we're just like, okay, God, you've given us the green light. I mean, it sounds like we need to have this surgery. So Sarah had the operation. And as the doctor removed the fibroid cyst, uh, it was larger than expected, but everything was okay. It was the size of a softball. And he removes this fibroid cyst. And after eight weeks of recovery, he said, now give it several months, you know, and then you'll be fine to start trying to have kids again. And so sure enough, we did that, and Sarah gets pregnant. And at first we were excited, but we were hesitant, and so we go in for an ultrasound, and we hear a heartbeat, and we see something starting to form. And we go back for another ultrasound, and there's more progress. And then several weeks later, Sarah starts having issues again and she goes through her second miscarriage. And it was devastating. I mean, we said, God, you know, what are you doing? I mean, God, we have felt like you have led us to find out the issue, and you, we felt like you led us to the surgeon, you know? We got pregnant, and now this? And the hardest part in that was watching Sarah and the toll that took on her. And I couldn't do anything. Just like Elkaniah couldn't do anything for Hannah. I mean, both of us couldn't. But yet God was still working. And let's see what he was doing. Let's continue on. So picking up back in verse 8, Hannah's husband would ask, Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkaniah would ask, Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? You got to give the guy credit, okay? (laughs) 
Let's just give him credit, all right? He really loves her, all right? But no matter what he did, he could not cheer her up. Now, I understand that. After the second miscarriage, the only thing I could do for Sarah was to hold her as she cried. That was it. And it wasn't enough. I didn't feel like I could do anything else. And as she would cry, God just simply said to me, you know, Tim, this was a life, and you need to mourn over this life. You need to have a little memorial service. You didn't for the first child. And so I felt like God was saying, you really need to do this for this child. And so I told Sarah, and Sarah agreed that that would be good between her and me to have this little memorial service. So we went down to a river. We had, I brought some flowers, and we prepared to say some things that we would have wanted to have said to that child. And we prayed, and we said those things. And um, it was amazing, because in that moment, we felt like a peace. And the reason we felt peace is in this. God says in Psalm 34, 18, he says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And as we poured out our anguish to God, we said, God, we trust you with our child. We know that he or she is in heaven and that you are taking care of him. And we don't understand why this is going on, but God, we trust you and we believe that you are in control. Now, the reason we could say that, um, that we had an assurance that our child would be in heaven is simply uh, some of the things that we've learned throughout history with God and what he has, has said. Last week, if you were here, Evan touched upon this. David committed this awful sin of murder and adultery, and the woman that he committed adultery with uh, had a child, and he was the king of Israel. Everyone looked up to this guy, and the consequence was he was going to lose the newborn child because of his sin because he had murdered her husband and was trying to cover it up. But we learned some great insight into what God says in the midst of this and what we know um, happened to this child. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21, David's talking to his advisors and his advisors are talking to him. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, David, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while a child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Now we know from numerous accounts in scripture that David is in heaven. And so we know that his newborn son is in heaven because David says, I will go to him. And there's so many other accounts in scripture from God to reassure us that those who've been lost in miscarriages, uh, babies, infants, young children, God sees them as innocent and they will be in heaven. Now, realize this, let me warn you. I am not saying that God sees everyone as innocent. He does not give a free pass to everyone. He says that he will hold accountable those who willfully sin against him, that he will hold us accountable that are living and can make those decisions for ourselves. And so he puts the weight on us, whether we have received and asked for forgiveness of our sins through his son. That's why it's so important to know his son, because the weight is on us and what we have done 
with his son. But going back to the questions that we're asking about young children and miscarriages and infants, you know, and the tension of, is God in control? Well, we've got to understand that God sees every life that is conceived as a person. He says it in tons of scriptures. And one of the most powerful is this. In Psalms um, 139.15, David says of God, you watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. So that means throughout history, there have been millions and millions of lives who have never been born, who have never come to full term. There have been millions and millions of infants and young children who have passed away and who have died, some from horrible diseases, some from malnutrition, from, some from a parent's choice, some from war. But yet, God says that those children are in heaven. So what does that mean for us? It means if you have ever had a miscarriage, if you have ever lost an infant or a young child, if you've ever had an abortion, your child is in heaven. And when you ask for forgiveness from Jesus for your sins, one day, one day, you will be in eternity and you will be face to face with your child along with the billions and billions that God has saved because he's in control. He's working behind the scenes. So let's continue to see how he unfolds this. Let's return to Hannah's story. Verse nine, once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli, the high priest, was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. And Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. And once Eli, the high priest, heard that, this is that what she was praying, he said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home, and in due time, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. Now, I love what Hannah models for us. In her deep anguish, she turns to God. And she says, O Lord of heaven's armies, which is like the first time this title had been used. And it's the song that we sang this morning. And what it means is that God is in control of everything on earth and in heaven. And she comes to that conclusion through her barrenness. And she says, if, if, if it be your will that you give me a son, then I will give him back for your service. So basically what we're seeing in her prayer is a reordering of her priorities. She's basically saying, you know what? This has been more about me and wanting a child to meet my needs, but God, you are the giver of life. 
And so if you, it's your choice to give me a son, then God, you do some amazing things through this child because he's yours. And so what a moment of surrender. I mean, what a moment of trust. She believes that God is in control whether he gives her a child or not. And we know it because she acknowledges it with her voice, with her words. And I love what happens. So after the family returns, God answers her prayer with the birth of the son, Samuel. But God does something else, okay? Remember, God is always working behind the scenes. So Samuel grows up to be one of the most important leaders in Israel's history. He is known for giving clear direction for the people who were scattered and how to follow God, and they start to unite. He's also used by God to establish a long line of kings, kings like King David, kings like King Solomon, these guys that we have read today who give us an assurance of who God is and what he has done with our children that we have lost because he's in control, and that's what he's doing behind the scenes. And in this long line of kings, an innocent infant is born, not a king, but the Messiah, the king, Jesus, through the line that was established through these kings. And Jesus would take his innocent life and put it up on the cross so that we could have forgiveness of our sins to show us that we can trust him with life and with death because he is in control. So after we lost the second baby, we went to church that Sunday and we were in a message series on faith. And the pastor really challenged us with the question of, do you want your faith to be a circumstantial faith based on circumstances which can go up or down or on the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ? And it was exactly what I needed to hear. You know, in the middle of my grief, you know, I just, I thought, God, I want my faith to be based on you, on who you are. You've, you've sent Jesus, you love me, you've died for me. That doesn't change. And my life circumstances could change all the time. And I've been through ups and downs, you know, in this infertility journey. Um, but it was just one of those moments of just putting that stake in the ground that, you know what, God, I trust you. I believe you are good and you have a plan in this, regardless of how I feel. And that I still, it didn't change the fact that I, I still didn't understand why all this was happening, but it was that moment where I said, I'm going to choose to believe. Through that journey, I drew closer to God and realized that even though this was so difficult and painful in so many ways that he was with me through that. And, and looking back now, I see so many little gifts he gave me along the way. And some of those I recognized at the time, whether it was um, a comment from a friend or a verse or flowers or whatever it was. Um, but seeing that he was really sustaining me through that. Through that, um, coming out of that process, was, there was still a lot of grief. It was still, you know, healing and grieving the loss of that baby and wondering, you know, would we still ever be able to have children? Um, and 
I was really so raw that I, I didn't even really want to engage the process of going back to the doctor again and the doctors and trying to figure out what's going on and them suggesting this and this and this. Um, so it, it took me about eight months to, to finally be like, okay, I just need to go back. And at that doctor's appointment, I still remember a nurse came in and said, you're pregnant. I'm like, I'm pregnant, really? And the doctor said, well, Sarah, you know, let's, let's wait and see. So, um, and that was when I was, found out I was pregnant with Audrey. So it was amazing after that, you know, four and a half years to, to find out that I was pregnant with Audrey and now God has given us three amazing kids and one another on the way. You know, the, the, the journey of trusting God, you know, never ends, you know, of raising kids now and trusting Him with, you know, their precious lives and all of that. Um, we lost another baby between Trevor and Caleb um, just a few years ago, you know, so that, you know, brought kind of all the emotion and the rawness, you know, back to the surface. And so, um, you know, that journey of trusting the Lord and with, with the ups and downs, you know, doesn't, doesn't end. Um, but knowing that He is faithful and that He doesn't change regardless of our circumstances changing is gives us hope you know and so much to hold on to during that now since that video was shot Daniel Joshua has been born and uh, yep so he is three weeks old and there's a picture of the whole crew and our four little blessings from God. And uh, let me tell you, you know, during our journey, we came to believe that God is in control, whether we were going to have kids or never have kids. Uh, we chose to trust God and believe Him and that His ways are perfect. And let me share with you just a reminder of the lessons that we learned through this journey and uh, a reminder for us that just uh, really echoes for us uh, everything that God did in our journey of infertility. And so after Audrey was born, uh, Sarah's brother and sister-in-law had this painting commissioned. And this painting is entitled Audrey's Song. And what it represents is on the sides, the two children that we lost uh, in miscarriages. And the uh, light at the top represents the life of Audrey that God gave to us. And never did we know that this painting would take on even more significance. As Sarah mentioned, um, we ended up having a third miscarriage between Trevor and Caleb. Um, but this painting hangs in our house, and it's a reminder that one day we will see our three children in heaven, and we will be a complete family of seven one day. And we are looking so forward to that. And I can tell you this as well. Even though the life of our three unborn children, we have never known them here on this earth, their lives have significantly impacted Sarah and I's lives. Our relationship with God would not be what it is without having experienced their lives. And their lives have influenced hundreds of people's lives. 
Uh, There are so many doctors, nurses, family members, friends who saw our story, who knew our story and saw what happened and continue to see what happens. And their lives have been so impacted with how much God is in control and what he is doing behind the scenes. And so my prayer today is that their lives will impact your stories. If you have ever lost a child and through a miscarriage, an accidental death, a young infant, I pray that you will realize that they are in heaven. And I also pray that the lives of our children will help you to begin to let go and trust God and say to God, just like Hannah did with her words, God, you know what? I trust you that you are in control. Even though I don't understand And if you're struggling with infertility, that you will just come to the spot of just starting to trust him because he is working behind the scenes. And so this is how I'd like to wrap up today. Today, I would like to pray over you like Eli did for Hannah. And then we were gonna sing a song of belief. And I want you to sing it wholeheartedly because he is in control. And what I wanna do is this prayer is really a prayer of healing for your soul. I want to pray that you would begin to take a step towards God of trusting him. So if you've ever been through a miscarriage, if you've ever lost a child as a young infant or a young child, I pray that during this prayer that you will begin to be able to say to God, God, I do believe that you're in control. I never knew that about you from today. And I never knew that my child is in heaven and you are keeping them safe. And my prayer is that you will realize that one day you will come face to face with them and you will know them for an eternity and not just such a short time on this earth. And that there are billions and billions of lives that God has saved. Now, one thing that meant so much to us as we went through this journey was actually finding out that there are other people who had similar stories. No one talks about that very much in many circles of what's happened with a miscarriage or a loss of an infant or a child. And everybody just kind of hushes up around that. And so today, in a moment, I'm gonna ask if you've ever lost a child through a miscarriage or as an infant or a young child, if you would just raise your hand because often we feel so isolated and alone on this journey. And I want you to be encouraged that there are many people who've been down this road. And I want you to be able to encourage one another. So if you've ever lost a child, would you raise your hand? Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much. So let me close us out in a word of prayer and let me pray over you. So let's pray. So Father, I thank you that you address all issues in life. Thank you that you have given us so much confidence from the Bible about the eternal destiny of our little ones. Thank you for their lives, even though they have been snatched away to heaven. And I thank you for all the children who have passed away that you saved them from knowing all the hardships of this world and from a life that experiences all the evil that exists here and now. Thank you for your compassion on these little ones who had no ability to repent of their sin and believe in you, Jesus. Thank you that the life they will only know is with you. And I pray that you would heal the hearts of these parents, Lord, as they mourn the loss of their little ones, turn their sorrow to joy, 
as they accept the truth that their little one is safely in your arms now and forever. God, give them a renewed hope of heaven and confidence in you. And may they reach out now with their stories and impact the lives of those around them so that more and more people will come to embrace your son and understand, God, that you are in control. You gave your life for us. We would have never done that. And so thank you for dying for our sins. And Jesus, if someone does not know you as their Savior, I pray that they will so that they will enjoy eternity with the billions and billions that you have saved. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.